0: your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbartis, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today from deep in the heart of Texas, my good friend, Mr. Dustin Melbartis. How are you doing, sir?
1: Good evening, Russell. How are you?
0: I am great. It's, uh, it's my Thanksgiving day. It's the weekend before Thanksgiving when we're recording this. So if I sound tired, I'm got the tryptophan like pumping through my veins. I had my turkey and my stuffing today. So I'm, I'm very full and it's good that I'm up late just letting all that settle in on me. So, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm fat Your gravy happy. Head. You know, I'm pumped though. Do you know why? Because of all the gravy? Nothing food related. It has to do with the special guests that we well, brought on today, one of, the, one of the best. We called in the heavy hitters here. We got Mr. DJ Bryant. How you doing, sir?
2: I'm doing well. How about you, gentlemen, tonight?
0: I'm doing great. This is a very exciting one for me to cover, and I'm glad you're here. Let's kick it off. Today's movie, Some Like It Hot. Huh? What is a hot movie that you like? Steamy, alluring,
2: sexy. I'm going to go with Cruel Intentions, 1999. Brian oh. Felipe, yes, please. Yes, God.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay. Now I have to pick a second one because that was my pick too. Cruel <laughs> Intentions. It was what the was perfect really? timing for me as a, as a young man.
0: That is amazing. And, well,
1: I've, and I I've, do want to say, Dustin thinks manipulation is
0: hot in movies. Okay. Not in real life. Okay. Not in real life. Not in real life. Okay. I, I went another direction. I went with the Thomas Crown Affair. I don't know if you've ever seen this one or not. Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. Rene Russo. Lovely. Yeah. Now, what is the last movie you watched, DJ?
2: Last movie I watched was the Hellraiser trilogy, um, beginning in 1987. Obviously, culminating mm. in a different year, and that was for Halloween.
0: Awesome. Um, we just did that on our on our show. What did you think of those? Uh, those three? I mean, obviously, the third one, I think things go off the rails. But uh, did you have fun with that?
2: I mean, I love those. I I think they are really wonderful in terms of just. The horror and the decadence of it all. Like, it is a Mm -hmm. very wonderful trilogy and series, and it's spooky, and I love all of that
0: stuff. As I said on the episode, it is actually quite underrated, I think. It is. It totally is, yes. Dustin, how about you? What's the last movie you watched? Looper
1: from 2012. Uh, My friend Tucker had it on, and it was at the scene where... Old Man Meets Young Man, I guess we'll say. I'm not going to spoil anything, but Old Man Meets Young Man. I thought to myself, I can sit down and watch another hour 15
0: of this. It's just fun. Not to keep plugging ourselves, but if you want to check out and hear a little more about Looper, I won't say where and when and how, but check out our top 10 of 2012. Could be on there. All right. So today, EJ, what movie are we going to cover today?
2: We're going to talk about Some Like It Hot, circa 1959.
0: All right. This stars Marilyn Monroe, the icon herself, Tony Curtis, that's Jamie Lee Curtis's dad. Jack Lemon, who that's just Jack Lemon no matter what generation you're from, George Raft, Joe E. Brown and Pat O'Brien. It grosses two point nine million dollars. Um sorry, it cost the budget was two point nine million dollars. It grosses. 25 million dollars domestically huge returns number three on the year massive success it comes in behind the shaggy dog and ahead of operation petticoat and the number one movie in 1959 we covered it as well i'm just plugging ourselves left and right ben-hur check out that from our 40th episode so uh, imdb gives some like it hot a nice 8.2 and the critics are on tomatoes in the audience score, right there with it, 94%. Rotten Tomatoes really loves this. Uh, It is an Academy Award winner for Best Costume Design, black and white. They separated things at the time, black and white versus color. Uh, Academy Award nominee, five times for a comedy. Really impressive. Best Director, Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Cinematography for a comedy. It's astounding. So, um... Best Art Direction as well. Golden Globes winner, three of them, for Best Actor in a Motion Picture, Best Actress in a Motion Picture, Jack Lemon and Marilyn Monroe. Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. It gets a BAFTA win for Jack Lemon. Best New Foreign Actor uh, gets another BAFTA nominee. Three time Laurel Award winner. And here's some big ones here the AFI distinctions. AFI on the top 100 movie quotes has this at number 48 for nobody's perfect and it is also on the top 100 movies at number 22 and it was updated from where it was number 14 before so in 1998 it was number 14 on top movies of all time and in 2000 they named it the number one best comedy of all time for the 100 years of laughs so we could potentially be dealing with the greatest comedy of all time. So no pressure. DJ had just seen it. What was it like coming back to it today? Well, yes, I had seen it.
2: I don't remember when I saw this. I do remember this was in a very intense kind of Marilyn Monroe obsession and kind of looking at all of her kind of, I would say, essential cinema. So obviously that's going to involve... All About Eve, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, How to Marry a Millionaire, and The Seven-Year Itch. And this one kind of struck right into that. And it was great seeing it again. Like, it was honestly great seeing it again. I love this film. It's so good. It's so funny.
0: Now, do you feel like, as you've been watching it, it has aged well? And then has it aged well, again, 59 is a long time ago. Many things have changed. Perceptions have changed about the subject matter, does this hold up here in the 2020s?
2: If we look at it for what it was in its time, I think it holds up very well. Essentially, getting into the logistics of this, you have two men in drag pretending to be women and living up this kind of like double life. And I think there for that time, that is very interesting and that is very poignant to be showcasing in cinema especially mainstream popular culture cinema if we if we were to dive into it through a lens of today there are some cringy moments but i i think it for what it is when it was how it happened it's perfect
0: yeah it's almost better that it is anchored to when it was exactly like yeah absolutely so yeah very good dustin how about you have you seen this one before
1: No, I've never seen this movie before. As our listeners know, I wait for you to tell me a movie and then I watch it. And I was pleasantly surprised when I look at the movies before 1970. Sometimes I give myself a little shrug and say, Okay, I guess, yeah, let's see. I know you like the old movies. For me, I have to put myself in the right mindset. Now, I love doing that, sitting down and saying, Okay. This is going to be a, a big culture difference. We're looking at 60 years. Let's, let's dig in. And uh, I was rolling on the floor. I'm not surprised that our wow. AFI list gave this as high of a ranking as it did. I do agree with what DJ said uh, about let's look at what this idea was for the time. And I think like some of the things would clearly not even be seen as like, even taking a risk today. But it was a huge risk 60 years ago. That being said, the the, the jokes were a mile a minute. Uh, not all of them are knockout punches. Some of them are just very clever lines. I wasn't expecting the writing and the dialogue uh, to be as witty as it was. Some of it isn't even really, I don't think, meant to make you laugh. It's meant to just get you in the experience or the mindset of just how people with this attitude talked to one another and uh, I love it I, I I thought it was wonderful
0: yeah, it's holding up to the to the clout that it has is what I'm that's it that I think hearing. I
1: know exactly what you're asking. Yes, it does, and some don't. I don't have to try that hard to understand what they were going for. Uh, and and if you are watching this movie, you can introduce something that's 30 years old to a, a a teenager nowadays, and they'll they'll look at it as if they don't understand what's going on. I don't think your mind has to work that hard to sort of get in the feel for what it would have been like to sit in the audience and watch this. It was a, it was a thrill. And uh, I would say this is something that, like I mentioned with Looper, if I saw that this was like on, I would sit down and continue watching it.
0: It is fun. I remember the first time that I saw this when I think I was in college, when I got to it finally, and I was seeking out all the AFI greatest thrills, comedies, action movies, all that stuff, horror movies. And obviously this being at the top of the comedies list You know, I kind of came into it being a big fan of comedies. Comedy is my favorite thing. So I was kind of coming a little bit skeptical. Like, I like a lot of certain comedies that didn't even make this countdown or are much lower. What is this movie doing in this position? What is this 1959 thing that they, you know. You're skeptical of it, right? Yeah. How funny are you? And um, I got to say, I left... Very pleased. I was. I I I liked it a lot, it, and I have returned to it once more since then. But it, there's long gaps in between it, and every time I come back to it, I'm sitting there going like, "Why have I not watched this more recently? This is great." So well, I want to bring this up real quick, R- Russell and DJ.
1: Sometimes, like <laughs> just two weeks ago or something, we we did the movie Dracula. And what's the movie Dracula about? Dracula. Well, with this movie, some like it hot. We do get it mentioned in the movie, like an hour and ten minutes in. But uh, I suppose it does have a a, a close, uh, like like it's it's adjacent to what the movie is about, really. But y- you look at the title of the movie, and maybe you don't know what it's about at all. I certainly didn't. So when I you know I have the chance to get introduced to something like this, uh, and then you get blown away. I'm, I was so glad I didn't know that it had that high accolade of being ranked number one of the best comedies in the century. I'm glad I didn't know because coming into it the way that I did, just like, wow, what, what a pleasant surprise
0: yeah and actually, I'm curious to know, as we get on the other side of the break how how the movie experienced as you're kicking into it if you don't know what you're getting in for because it starts off like a mob movie, so um yes, it does, but anyway okay. uh we'll we'll get into this as we get past the spoiler wall here so there will be spoilers that lie ahead. Do not spoil this one. If you have not seen something like it, you owe it to yourself to see this one as any film fan and uh which is the kind of people who come to listen to us. So, uh definitely check this one out. We will be back after this. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill and I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for
2: movies, the 1980s. So, whether you're a brain, a jock,
0: now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. We're back and there will be spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Dustin, for those who haven't seen Some Like It Hot since 1959, do you want to refresh people's memories?
1: It's Chicago in the late 1920s and Prohibition is full on. Joe and Jerry are two musicians doing their best to pay the bills, working in Spats Columbo's speakeasy underneath Mozzarella's funeral parlor. The police show up to bust the operation, and the two street smart fellas beat feet out of there. After looking for more temporary music gigs, they learn of a wonderful opportunity, for a sax player and a string bass player, no less, but it's playing for an all-female outfit, Sweet Sue and her society syncopators. On their way to another gig, they witness yet another gang-related incident, this one resulting in at least five men getting rubbed out and barely escape with their lives. Their best bet to escape the mafia, disguise themselves as Josephine and Daphne and hop a train with the women's band down to sunny Florida. Gender-bending hijinks ensue as they struggle to maintain their false identities, Especially when they are surrounded by all these rather talented dames, including the sultry sugar cane. what is she, a Bond girl, who just so happens to have a bad habit of getting mixed up with the wrong kind of men, saxophonists. Now that they're in Florida, they should be safe from the eyes of the mob, allowing us to focus on Joe's second identity theft. This time as the heir to Shell Oil in an attempt to trick Sugar into falling in love with him. We could also focus on Daphne's new love interest, Osgood Fielding III, another millionaire, which seems like it's really got legs. Except for just the absolute brutal coincidence that Spatz and his gangsters happen to be in town for the Friends of the Italian Opera Conference, presided over by the infamous Little Bonaparte. Now our boys, or should I say gals, have to get to safety again, with a daring chase scene through ballroom halls, underneath mobsters' feet, and avoiding deadly birthday cake to the docks on the beach, where Osgood, Daphne, Joe, and Sugar escape to relative safety.
0: Well done, well done. And there is a lot that happens there. As I mentioned, this movie starts off like a mob movie. It's like a 1940s mob movie. Although it's not in the 40s, we're set in the 20s. We'll come back to that in a minute here. But um, this movie spends a lot of time, before it ever gets going, laying the groundwork. You mentioned, DJ, that this long movie, I mean, there's not they're not yucking it up right away. And that's 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 an interesting move here that Billy Wilder makes.
2: totally. And can we just say that this is like the story of my life, honestly? Well, you need to hear more about this then. (laughs) Yeah. But like for the first like three minutes, there is no dialogue. You just witness this gangster scene and you come into this as like, as if you had not seen this before, you had no idea what you're getting into. What am I watching right now? This is not a comedy. This is very intense. And, it, and it's the breaks that they put into this and the comedy and the it, it, it makes it fabulous, honestly.
1: You're right, as in you don't know exactly what's going on yet. Uh, and there's focus on th- there's an automatic escalation if the cops are already firing. You've got holes in these caskets. I think it's at this point you see a little bit of liquid going out. So it does make sense. OK, this is a these are false caskets transporting booze, perhaps there's a cool moment in the uh we'll say the getaway car where uh, the 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 ceiling uh like fabric of the vehicle is unpeeled or unsnapped and they pull weapons out from under there they're like wow we are in a heist movie i did what am i what did i sit down for and then that's all just table dressing
0: it is and it's amazing that uh i think there's something powerful in that though that pivot I think there's something of, like, you expect something to happen, and then something else very different happens. I'm going to use an architectural term of, like, compress and release. Like, Frank Lloyd Wright would take you in, like, a small space, and he really would pinch the ceiling down uncomfortably close, turn you 90 degrees, you do not see what you're walking into, and then he would release you. And then that's actually the main event of why you're there, but there was no indication of what was coming because you had actually set the table for the opposite of that. And that makes the comedy more um, rewarding that you saw it out of this very serious situation. So that's a powerful thing that you do as a filmmaker to use people's emotions to invest. Like you said, I'm in a mom movie. I'm actually, I'm genuinely excited. There's a sense of urgency and there's a sense of character that's being built before they ever start to play with what the framework is so um, i don't know if that's a fair point dj or if that's me overpraising it no that
2: is 100% spot on i agree with everything you just said like i i don't know what to add to it in fact because it it is so unexpected and we'll talk about this more but even in the ending scene like it is anticlimax upon anticlimax upon <laughs> anticlimax Right. And it keeps pulling you deeper (laughs) into this whole dialogue. And you're like, why am I watching this for two hours? But it's funny (laughs) and it's good and you love it. That's why.
1: There are some times when guests say that something is good and what they're trying to do is justify why it's a favorite movie. But DJ (laughs) is right. This is good. I don't like long movies. One of my biggest things. (laughs) If it's over two hours, then that means you're having to drag me to watch this. But I think what's really important about setting this mafia situation in Chicago up is, and tell me what you think about this, we have to have a good reason for why Joe and Jerry would go to the lengths of dressing up like women. It can't be for a lark. That's a good point. Right? Right? It can't just be for fun. Now, we could see that if it were today, but the, 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 extre- the extreme swing of the pendulum is what, at what point would you consider going in drag, dressing up, and infiltrating the train to get down to Florida and part of this all-women's band? Oh, we witnessed a murder, and we got to get out of here. So I feel like they almost had to go to that extreme in order for some people not to just blow their top. Maybe I'm over-exaggerating here, but I think it makes sense.
2: I agree with you here, <laughs> Dustin, because I That's... think you were right. Like it, It, it is that you have to create the reason behind doing this because this is so transgressional for the time period. And what we're seeing, why would two men cross-dress as women – and live this double life and do this. And this was the only socially acceptable means at the time for why this would happen. Mind you, there are other means and other reasons why you would do this as a man. Right. You Like it, you're a drag queen, whatever. But this was what pop culture needed to hear. And this is what made them feel safe and comfortable.
0: Yes. And no, when they actually screened this DJ, I, I'll go right to it. Like, this did terribly. They they had people upset. They walked out of the theaters. They said, this is trash. I can't, I, my children can't see this. And, you know, I mean, like you said, all the things that 1950s, you know, norms could bring, and they changed very, very little. And we'll talk about what they changed later, but then they re-aired different theater in Brentwood, a uh, younger audience, and then they loved it. And changed very little 30 seconds just very small adjustment and that it's not really in the adjustment i think it has to do with who's watching it but um obviously people flocked to the theaters and they got over it it's interesting um to your point how quickly comfortable people even in this time this stodgy time became connected to these characters and just said this is fun it's actually against the odds that this was so successful really
1: i think The movie also puts you in positions that are, by necessity, uncomfortable. There's an amount of cringing, perhaps. Maybe it's just, like, the fear of getting caught. I found myself almost on the edge of my seat, or just like, oh no, they're so close to getting caught, and i'm more nervous for this in a social situation for 1959 than i am seeing a movie about like you know warfare or espionage or assassination like the the social risk of this was enough to be like oh what's going to happen if they do when they do and that's another reason that it's so surprising that the movie's 2 hours long because you would expect the jig would be up eventually but really, we make it the whole way, don't we? Pretty much, right up to the, <laughs> and at least for Oswald, it's it's a self-reveal from Joe, is it?
0: I d- I don't remember exactly, um, but it's very late. Josephine. But it's a
1: self-reveal, yeah. And then, of course, we get
0: no, 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 it was Daphne. That was that was that's the um, end. Who that's said the that? end? Yeah, Daphne's the yeah. end.
2: Josephine is first. That's we yeah we, we understand right. Josephine's yeah. true character. But Dustin, I think I'm going to pick up on something you're laying down because I think in my mind as well, this reads like almost like first date, like with a new person, like you want to put on the best person you are. You want to be like this, this like superstar of an individual and not show all the baggage that you come with, you know, and at some point that has to be revealed because if it's true love, if there's something truthful there. You have to reveal the true core of your persona. And that's the the kind of dramatic drive here. Is that like, okay, Joe slash Josephine is very into sugar. Mm-hmm. And sugar is also into not Josephine, what she thinks is Josephine. And there, there there's there's like territory there. That that's like the 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 territory you have to navigate as a new lover with someone's like, okay. This is what you know of me and here's what you're going to realize of me are you okay
1: with that sugar believes she's confiding in josephine when in reality what she's doing is revealing the baggage to joe it's strange to say that like we don't really get how much screen time do we have of sugar and joe together 10 seconds not a lot maybe mm-hmm. uh we don't get like uh the period of the movie where it's like, well, surprise. And the wig comes up. This is actually who I was. He, instead, we get another hour of him playing this <laughs> shell oil executive. When they get down to Florida, what's the first thing they want to do? We want to go swimming. <laughs> and then, uh, Daphne, I got to say, Jack Lemmon's uh, choice to choose, like, well, I'm a Daphne now, uh, is so fun. That's one of the first things I just laughed out loud at. But just like the the flippant attitude towards it. Yeah, we can do all this fun stuff when it's just every every choice is the potential for getting caught and let's not forget because this is something i'm quite critical of shouldn't they be home safe once they're out of the state <laughs> in 1959 shouldn't you think that the whole mob driving them out of chicago like ooh we you know we wipe our brow we made it we're safe we don't have to keep up the ruse now anymore if i mean i guess i suppose there's at this point, we're still dealing with a lot of dishonesty. Now they're looking to make riches. How do we steal and how do we pose as millionaires? None of it is really like, you know, I'm really got a heart of gold, knight in shining armor. It's almost all deception in this movie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The only thing that keeps them in it is because of their interest in the women who they're around. Now they are musicians, and they do, yeah. they, they, they're not faking what they do, they can actually play. So I actually would yes. contest and say faking a millionaire is harder because you know th- they are still musicians they are not changing their socioeconomic status they're having to they walk went them to in a and conservatory. Shoes. and they have all the typical funny things of like hey that's that's hard dealing with that as a woman that's always funny i mean if you look at number 2 on the afi list it's also it's hard to you know. It's hard to walk around in women's high heels, if you will, as a man, because you're used to going through your life into a certain degree of privilege in a certain way with that. And so, when you, you know, have the carpet pulled out, you, know, number two movie I, I was getting at is Tootsie. That's a, another cross-dressing movie turned on its head. So clearly, uh-huh. the AFI finds this dynamic to be very funny, <laughs> um, well, and it is. Yeah. Both of them are very funny, um, but it, <laughs> to fake. A millionaire is something you've never even, you know, I mean, you have so, so little in common with that so to some degree. And, you, you know, you're walking in saying, like, I'm going to take you to this other part of my yacht. And it's like a nice thing about this yacht is it has nice closets, you know, like, I mean, so visibly not in his element. But um, this also makes Marilyn Monroe's dumb blonde kind of sweetheart personality all the more endearing. And she makes it work because... You know, she is so gullible, but also such a sweetheart. You you love her for just being such a good natured person. <laughs> well, the, I, I do kind of want to you know, bring
1: up the, the dumb blonde thing. Uh, is she the worst investigator or like the lowest perception that we could have had? Like it's such a gift that she's it's almost like too easy to pull the wool over her eyes. Can we
2: just put on a public service announcement at this point and just issue the proclamation that every man at some point in their life should put on stilettos and ideally fishnets and tramps around just a little bit just to see how it's like?
0: Oh, I'm hey, down. I'm totally cha- down. That's the challenge has been laid down. Is this a holdover of what is called the screwball comedy? Now, the screwball comedy really starts to come into play in the 30s and runs... You know, into the forties. This is way later than typically we'd call a screwball comedy. But a screwball comedy is where a male character has their masculinity challenged, often in like a funny battle of like the sexes, or like it it, it it drops in a woman who's really strong, usually, and um turns things on its head. And comedy can come from that. It's kind of a dead genre, um or subgenre, if you will. But this movie. While not necessarily driven by, you know, a woman taking control of a relationship as much as *The Screwball*, it does often have people playing roles of who they are not, like bringing up baby, or like all about Eve, where you have this very strong female figure that then, by in terms maybe takes away the masculinity or emasculates kind of the male character but in this case it's not a character doing that it's the men are being placed into women's shoes and therefore their masculinity is being forced to be reevaluated. i would contend and say that this is out of the era of screwball comedies but you could call this a pseudo screwball comedy because of that i don't think this
1: is fun or enjoyable to watch because of someone losing something I think it's fun or enjoyable to watch because of Jerry and Joe gaining something, which is perspective and experience. We get some sweet moments of that throughout the movie. And I think we could take time. We could take a lot of time to say, like, their their reactions to uh, being the objects of the male gaze and male behavior <laughs> there are people you could probably teach a 17 week course on this movie alone uh, or at least as far as themes go that's important but i i don't think that's where it derives its genius it's probably more of a shock uh, and we got plenty of those way later what's the first thing i thought of with this movie it was uh, white chicks uh with the wayans brothers playing <laughs> playing women Uh, You you have the idea that there are certain comedians that won't do drag. There are certain comedians that will uh, think of Tyler Perry's whole shtick with Medea. There's a whole bunch of stuff. I I think what's fun about those, at least in in, with modernity is that you you get to see what's gained. And I don't think it's, it's genius comes derives from something being taken away. They do comment on it themselves in the movie, which is fun and prescient. Like it's, it shows that they kind of knew a little bit about what they were doing. It was more special than a representation of this screwball era time. And,
2: and I would go a little further too, because I appreciate the, the connection to screwball comedy that Russell made. I, I see a lot of vaudeville here. Mm-hmm.
0: Another interesting component of when you're doing this, you're creating juxtapositions. And then there lies a lot of the humor. And like you said, what is gained and the enlightenment of just like, hey, I'm starting to see the perspective of I'm one of those low down, dirty saxophone players and I hurt people, you know, or (laughs) I, Hey, it's hard to be a woman and have Oswald, like get all handsy with you in an elevator. I don't like that actually, (laughs) even though, you know, he was sitting there drooling to contrast that you have Marilyn Monroe, who is just straight up femininity.
2: Marilyn has that line where she's like, she's talking about, um, Daphne's, uh, bathing suit and she's like oh you're so flat chested and rather than say like oh you're you're a man like I know what you are she's like oh my god clothes hang so much better on you than they do me and she has these like beautiful boobs like what can we talk about Marilyn Monroe's boobs like amazing hyper femininity like Dolly (laughs) Parton, Nicki Minaj, these people we know now that are hyper feminine. And
0: she's just like, you're way better than I am. You can pass. This works. Very funny. It's also great to see the play between the two characters. Joe is, Josephine, is unaware. Uh, This feels uncomfortable. He's been dragged into this. This wasn't technically his idea, and he has been forced into it. He is uncomfortable. You see it in his character that he's going to be clocked or uh, picked out as a as a man, it, 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 it's, it reads through in his acting. Tony Curtis does a great job of feeling uncomfortable. In fact, it borderline might not be acting. It just might be being, <laughs> might just be being uncomfortable in the 50s doing this. And then- I was convers- thinking about that. And then conversely, Jerry, uh played by Jack Clemon, Daphne, uh, as he prefers to be called. <laughs> and he, even, that, even in that line, as you mentioned, Dustin, he's having- you know, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to kind of have fun with it. You know, he comes in off of a date and he actually likes being pursued. And he, like, it's not necessarily that he necessarily is attracted to Oswald. He likes being wined and dined and treated nicely and the door opened for him. And he's got maracas and he's like swinging him around, like saying like, Ooh, I had a good night, you know, like this was fun. And there's this really funny moment of like, he's almost on vacation from masculinity and that um you know he he almost struggles in hiding his enthusiasm for still liking women while he's doing it but aside from that uh, not coming off as lesbian is the, his biggest challenge because otherwise the world of womanhood is kind of i dare i say kind of fun for him jerry seems to like enjoy it enough to the point where that's part of the comedy in this. and this and the and that difference between the two characters is very funny I think there's something here where, let's
1: put it straight. Does he enjoy, is his life better as a woman? I think so.
0: He bags a rich dude, so, I mean.
1: (laughs) The way that. He was into it. The speed at which he adopts that this is just the way it is now, and I like it, is so comedic. She is a made woman now because she found Fielding. And I'm just like, this is. It doesn't. It. I tried to move past what the intention was and just focused on the what the production, which was she's she's
0: having a great time. Daphne's life is great. Uh, they dance until the sun comes up. They take turns being uncomfortable and comfortable with it, and they're they go so deep undercover. You know, I mean, and same thing. Joe gets so deep in with Sugar, he can't get out of this relationship because he just likes being around her, and so. They egg each other on, and they they push and pull against each other in ways, and that push and pull is where the comedy lies between Joe and Jerry.
2: Again, my perception of this now is that we are not laughing at this whole kind of comedy routine. Like there is a certain freedom in it, and that is the magic of it. Masculinity, as much as a production, as femininity is right, and you don't need to That's a a good hold to that. You can play with both sides. They're, all the colors are at your disposal, right? It doesn't have to be one or the other. You can be both.
0: That's
1: a salient point.
2: Or shades in between.
0: Tony Curtis was first signed by United Artists, and he was pressured. Uh, you know, Billy Wilder wanted Jack Lemmon, but they didn't really want... The studios didn't want Jack Lemmon. Uh, he doesn't have the name clout that he goes on to have. And so it wasn't until... That they got Marilyn Monroe on board, that she had enough star power to make this go to where they, Wilder had the freedom to sign Lemon. It's insane that Lemon is like such an amazing actor, and he goes on to have the career that he does. But this is the early part of his career where he doesn't have that clout. So, um, once again, this movie doesn't work as well without Marilyn Monroe, but it also isn't made in the same way. You don't get Jack Lemon if you don't get Marilyn Monroe. Oh,
2: there's a lot to say here, Russell. There is a lot to say. I am a big Marilyn Monroe fan, 100%. And this film in particular is right before, like three years before her death. And this was quite a toll upon her as an actor. She had just had a miscarriage and was on this, this film now and getting pregnant as well and trying to maintain that pregnancy which is an exceptionally um, emotional and very tolling time upon an individual. And she's met with the baggage of that while also delivering this film, which is also a film in which she is playing the dumb blonde character, which she is known for, and she does so well. She does better than anyone else. And that is... I think is perceived by a uh, a mass culture to be not a true actor, but just a ditzy kind of character. That is the beauty and the tragedy of this film, right? You know, this is one of Marilyn's last pictures. But yeah, so that there's all that here with Marilyn,
0: the nerves that she had. Like she would just shake her hands, and she couldn't get her lines right repeatedly. There's a mental breakdown. She wanted to be taken seriously as an actress, I read. I'd read that she had been studying method acting. She wanted to be in roles of prestige. And this hurt that she took this. You know, it was. it's easy. It's just fluff And in, in essence, it's doing what you don't want to do. Which, none of that shows. I mean, they were talking about hours to take a scene. In some cases, 40, 50, 70 takes to get one line right. And... The actors around her, like Tony Curtis, was just getting angry, afraid that the one time that she gets it right, that maybe he'll get it wrong. This is, this is great. This is, this is a really great piece. I'm glad she did this, but it came at cost. Like you said, there's, there's the tragedy of Marilyn, and I was really surprised to see that because it does not look like a train wreck. They, they blew their time out of the water. Like They extended, like they had to build their whole scenes around, like, what if Marilyn doesn't come in? They were strained. The production was hard and extended. Because of Marilyn's quote unquote unreliability, but most people don't
1: make a mark on the world. And we rarely get into this depth of conversation about any of our actors. Um, but Marilyn Monroe, this piece, this performance will be what I will remember her for. And what I think maybe the world should remember her for. Russell, you said it's the number one comedy in the AFI.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Her ability to get to the performance that we got was hard. And it hurt. But what we got was gold. More so than the uh-huh. iconic pictures. She's a more recognizable name than any U.S. president. Oh-oh. And it's, it's hard to attain permanence. And she has it in culture. I won't link her tragedy of what came later in her short life uh, to the performance in this movie. I, am, I will consider ourselves lucky
0: that we got what we got. You don't have it without her. I mean, it is... You know, Billy Wilder, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, Marilyn Monroe. Any one of them aren't there. This doesn't work like it does. I think you're right. I think you're right. So, I mean, the fact that the studios kept It's going to be fun to telling...
2: recast this.
0: Yeah, I know. Oh, I know. Got <laughs> uh, a weird one. Uh, Jack Lemmon, the fact that the studios just kept sitting there saying, I don't want this guy. There's nobody. I mean how does it feel to be yeah. so wrong <laughs> 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 i feel like somebody loses their job on that they should i mean yeah. he's so good at it so um he's so good um tony curtis and jack lemon put on their first female makeup costumes and they walked around um the golden studios to see if they could pass for because they had done hours and hours and hours of makeup testing and so their big challenge was to go into a women's room and um even before they showed Billy Wilder, they just said, you know, Tony Curtis was like, let's just go to the women's room and see if we pass. And uh, they they did their voices. And actually, Tony Curtis gets his voice dubbed in the movie because he's, <laughs> he's got a very deep voice. And I don't think he's, <laughs> his <laughs> voice is not going to fly. So they dubbed his voice. But they go in, they do their thing, and the women were polite and didn't say get out kind of thing. Part of me still says and goes, "I think women are just nicer about this and might have just been polite at the time anyway." Like, <laughs> "Oh, bless your heart, you're trying." Like, <laughs> you know, like but maybe we can look at it this way:
1: is that like with with the voices they put on, because the voices they put on aren't realistic. And so I think what we have to do is we have to convince ourselves that like, oh, these voices they put where they put on, I think are better for the comedic stylings of the audience watching than they are for the oh, this person actually sounds like a woman.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and, and in fairness, they, they were being coached. Um You can't miss doubtfire do your, your dress all way all the like way on that. a
1: train down to Florida. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that awareness of not losing that awkwardness and being part of the humorous I mean there's Just, there's humor in it, so
1: we we get plenty of it, but the uh the giddiness of the two men. I mean at this point they're like kind of like two boys like you know, the 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 cocks in the hen house that that like, oh can you believe our situation? Oh boy, I tell you. And some of that is, is good. If that's what all of this was, I would have been bored by it. Uh, instead, we get introduced to so many fun new situations and listening to the understanding. I do think a lot of credit has to go to the script because the, the jokes are great. Situations are um, are quite funny. I really didn't know where they were going once they introduced like the second trick, which is like, oh, he's going to dress up like a millionaire now. And it ends up going for so long. It, it was just well done, uh, and I was I was kept guessing. I said, well, how are they going to do this? And then, surprise, mob conference. It was an opera conference, sir, Italian opera. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the appreciators of Italian opera. With they, they couldn't find a guy that knew how to flip a coin. They had to teach somebody on set, hey, you look like you could be an Italian mobster. You want to flip this coin? Sure, i never done it before. They couldn't find someone that's flipped a coin before.
2: I was going to talk a little bit about Jack Lemmon signing on to this because when he read it, it was only a partial script. And what he had said to his uh, person or associate, whomever he was talking with at the time, about this was like, why did you sign up for that? And he's like, oh, it's a good script. It's Billy. He knows what he's doing. I'm committed now and he's going to write the part for me. And so it's going to be superb. And it was. And it was. Like, I'm going to pick back up on the Marilyn thing too now. Like, she was so good in this, amazingly good. And it's so sad that she gets so much baggage for being quote unquote problematic during this time period when she's dealing with all of this stuff. And she still delivers this amazing performance.
1: Russ. Real quick, I want to ask, just I, I hope it I really didn't want to forget it before we moved on. What was the 30 seconds that was changed? Do you have that info of there was some just one small change? Because I really want to learn what that was. It it was a scene
2: in the train, um, and it might have been 60 seconds, but it was the scene in the train where I think Marilyn gets into Josephine's bunk and they have a little
1: dialogue together. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Is it kind of when she's talking about how, like, her and her sister used to, like, snuggle together?
2: No, no, no. That, that was Daphne.
1: That was... That, oh, that's was kept, And that's That was, that, kept. Right. That's that was kept. It was a separate one where
2: she gets into Josephine's bunk. And I believe also there was something about Daphne coming down to, and it was about two men being in the bunk together at the same time and kind of, uh, quote, unquote, as Billy Wilder said, gilding the lily in terms of the homosexual nature of this this film. And so they took it out.
0: And I don't think that was the thing that sank its screening before, to your point, Dustin. I just think where they showed it and who they showed it to, and I don't know. The world struggles with I, what they view as subversive behavior. It's, like I said, it's cool that this works so well for comedy, for time and time again. It's, it's, it's funny that society can empathize, become part of these characters, see all this stuff, learn their lessons, and then still have an issue with it. Because that's how it kind of goes for many, many years anyway.
1: It's a it's an interesting kind of litmus test for the people is to say, do you
0: like this fun, entertaining thing? Well, yeah. Good. And I, I, I said, Brentwood, um, the preview was at Westwood, uh, um, a section of audience of LA. And the crowd loved it, by the way. It was Westwood. And uh, again, younger college campus thing. People stood up and cheered. So... The degree of like, I'm walking out, nobody's happy versus standing ovation, huge difference. And, and here's the thing, but they paired it with a different movie that was serious and then they watched it. So it's like giving somebody a dish that just doesn't belong together and then told, asking him how they felt about that. Whereas the second screener didn't have that problem. Uh, uh, Billy Wilder had worked with Marilyn Monroe before on seven year itch. Now. Uh, DJ, do you see comparisons to their work there together versus here? Marilyn and Billy, that is?
2: A little. Yeah, a little. Um, I definitely see more comparisons in uh, Billy Wilder's scene opening scene with Marilyn, where she's walking to the train and you get the hiss of this, the steam engine and she kind of turns around and kind of like does this like demure, kind of like, oh my goodness, kind of thing, which is obviously relating back to the essential scene of the seven year itch where her dress blows up where Mm -hmm. she's talking about men and kind of their ways. So yeah, I I see some, I see some uh, parallels.
0: Yeah. And again, he had worked with her before, so I think he thought it was going to go a lot easier this time. And again, that's just an indication of where Marilyn was in her life. not, who she was as a human being necessarily. So, um, you know, I guess they were considered, you know, later working with her and he did not want to work with her again coming out of this one. So you have somebody like Shirley MacLaine and being in the apartment the next year, man, that's a heck of a back to back run though. <laughs> you go, some like it hot in the apartment. So, I mean, he's on fire right now himself. So, um, but his directorial choices reflected his belief in, uh, the, primacy of writing he said that he uh, really didn't enjoy directing very much he considered himself a writer and that he was essentially in the second half of his career you know he'd become this um uh director out of the need to not get in the way of the writing writing was what billy did first and foremost that's what he considered himself and so as a film creator he's doing it to keep the integrity of the story of the characters and so it's very interesting you talked about that that bones 40 page script dj you have a writer at the helm guiding this through shaping it constantly as it goes through i think this is just one of the things that makes billy wilder so so good you know i mean we talked about this in um take the money and run woody allen kind of does the same thing he's really a writer and he just happens to direct movies Uh, If you look at Billy Wilder's um, direction, it's not cinematography buffets. Like, he's he's not that fancy. This is not a pretty presented movie. I found it interesting. I got nominated for cinematography, black and white, in the Oscars. It's just a good movie. But correct me if I'm wrong, DJ. Maybe I missed it. I didn't think this was that well shot necessarily as like, I didn't think the movie was that ambitious. He's incredibly judicious. Like he cuts people off. The actors kept feeling like I needed another take or why did you cut me off then? And he always just knows as an editor, that's all I need. That's all I need. And he cuts people off. And, and there's this amazing efficiency that he has, which again, contrasts with the problems that Marilyn was having, but he doesn't really consider himself a director first. He's a writer first in his mind.
2: Yeah, it, it is not a, a a smorgasbord of, like, sexy shots or things like that. Like, uh, what he liked to do in this was his kind of master shot kind of oeuvre, where, like, you film a scene from beginning to end, almost like a, a continuous take, basically. So if one person messes up their line, the whole scene is spoiled, right? And that's why... Mm-hmm. Marilyn's issues became a problem during this this film because if they couldn't all get through the scene, then it had to be redone multiple times, right? But at the same time, I I, I feel that I mean, I don't know Billy, I don't I've never worked with him obviously, but I feel like he was very <laughs> cruel cool to Marilyn because there were many times when they could have just shot the scene and then dubbed it over with dialogue. At times it
0: did. At times it but did. But
2: kept, he kept going for, I want this to be perfect. I need this to be perfect. And this, it's this kind of like maniacal drive to perfection.
1: It's like he's obsessed with his yeah. secret ingredient. Like, th- th- this must be in every every five to seven minutes, if I don't get my dose of it, that I'm failing. Speaking of the the, the shots and some of the, the things I noticed, there's another dubbing situation where I think the, uh, the Run and Wild song... Is uh poor? Re- I like the song, but it's really poorly dubbed in the movie. Not just like poor for the movie; just like uh, it, it kind of made me cringe. Um, some of the like sexy shots. Let's just talk about like the the women running around in their women's bunk on the train. I thought there was. I, I'm gonna say <laughs> there's like a bit of restraint that could have gone hog wild. That could there could have been a lot more, and the fact that there was less made me feel like. Good job realizing that you can't show this much. Whether it was Marilyn and Frame or some of the other ladies. Sometimes you just had like a curtain of legs. Like Tony Curtis is like sticking his head out. And you're like, oh my, this is this is really quite risque. Uh, so there, there were some things that I thought were... I, like as far as film making that like, stood out. Some of them were flubs, but some of them were good. Uh, I, I thought the music was fun throughout the whole movie. There were some scenes too, like in the banquet hall where the mob birthday surprise is going to happen that was really quite bland to me from the corner uh they they're kind of the the choices to shoot uh to where you have spats and his crew sort of in the center of the frame which makes sense but also you you're just seeing a lot of backs of heads Uh, stuff that i just thought to myself like Oh okay I'm starting to notice something and if I'm noticing something then the more critical film heads will have noticed it. It just it seemed some things seemed a bit off but I guess the way that you described his uh sort of background as a writer instead it makes sense why uh, maybe not as much attention was paid to these things.
0: Yeah he's trained he's trained as a journalist by the way. He's a writer. Right. He became a writer. He became a writer in Germany and wrote silent movies and then he has to flee Germany cuz not a good time for certain people who <laughs> don't fit the Nazi agenda. <laughs> and um, oh, well, well, he goes to Paris initially and then comes to America and uh, he co writes Ninochka. Ninochka? Ninochka. Um, Ninochka. Ninochka. Thank you. In 1939, and 1939 and Hold Back the Dawn in 1941 both get nominations for Best Academy Awards, Best Screenplay. So, dude comes over, blows the lid off of it as a writer. And that's what springboards his whole filmmaking career. He never stops writing. And so, to your point, he hasn't been trained as a cameraman or anything like that. He doesn't come from a theatrical world. He's from a journalist world. Sure. That's how he makes his movies. And it does show. He is not Spielberg with framing, camera movements. And granted, Spielberg comes decades later. However, if you look at like how William Wyler did Roman Holiday with Audrey Hepburn, which we covered about a year ago, beautiful movie. I don't think William can make a movie. You know, he did Ben Hur too, by the way. I don't think the dude can make something that doesn't look beautiful. Just like he can't stop seeing how to just shoot it in a beautiful way. That's not how Billy works. And in fairness, Billy's later career leaves this very dramatic world and does go seven-year itch. And, you know, it it does leave. I mean, the dude did double indemnity early on. Sunset Boulevard, Sabrina. Like, and then later on he goes and has a, like a career change it's lighter affair now it has a lot of integrity it's well written and it's burdened with characters but he shifts his career quite drastically it's very possible we'll come back and cover one of his movies again later and be having a very different conversation about like how he functions in the role because i find it interesting he's like two really good directors careers in one dude
2: Interesting. So you read about how long it took them to edit this thing together. And it was like within a week or so, which is unheard of. Like a lot of time goes into editing, to editing together a film. And he was so good. And so on point to know when to tell um, someone to cut a scene that he didn't end up with all these extraneous pieces of material that you had to piece together to make the scene. That was the scene. It was done. This is it on film. We are going to use this now. And that is... That's very rare for that time. It's almost like instinct
1: in a way. Like, oh, this kind of works. It is. Yeah.
0: He's pretty far in his career as a director at this point, though. I mean, like, this is the second half of his career. So, like, to DJ's point, dude knows what he needs. (laughs) And nothing more. He doesn't want any more than... (laughs) I don't need anything more. (laughs) Like, So... What do you I was actually refreshed to find out this was shot on location, a lot of this. This they went um not well not to Florida. They they said it in Florida. Florida's like kinda like Hawaii at this point in history. Like this is this this is exotic. <laughs> this is the getaway. Um you know. Florida. Wow, you went to Florida? Cool. Yeah. So just just you can interchange this. If this were set now, this this would have been set in Hawaii. But anyway, <laughs> um so um it, the uh the resort though that they filmed was actually the hotel de coronado in san diego uh, which is obviously closer to movie making world in la but they went there good on them they shot those and you know maryland's ongoing problems became more difficult as this as things had set in but um i thought that was cool they they found an old victorian resort hotel it, um it's been in other movies before, but this is obviously the top of the list. Um, it's in *Wicked*, *Wicked* from or sorry, from nineteen seventy three with Peter O'Toole, uh, *The Girl in the Golden Watch* and everything. *My Blue Heaven*. I really like this movie. It's a Steve Martin, I Rick Moranis movie. Heaven. Talk, yeah, the, talking about uh, faking who you're not. That's another good one. Um, and uh, so this 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 resort pops up there, here and there again, and good on them for going there. At this point, you're not granted that necessarily. A little bit earlier in filmmaking history, they don't they don't do that. Um, So I think Billy Wilder has the clout to go shoot there. So I I like that. I don't feel like we were in Chicago as as much per se. Um, Like I didn't. I felt like I was swimming in resort escapism. Um, They they depicted a certain vibe, but I didn't feel like I got the you know like when we did the sting. That was gangster world, Chicago. This is not the sting. Is that fair? I felt like I was watching a 1940s movie where everything was very controlled and and a very set kind of thing. And they they, they, they they that changes when they go to Florida. I suppose maybe
1: it's fair to say that we knew that we were getting out of Chicago as soon as we could.
0: Wardrobe. I was surprised. In a movie where men have to be portrayed as women... They did do some amazing work on this one. But one of the reasons to shoot this movie in black and white was their makeup apparently looked green on camera. And they looked sick and super not believable. And I've seen a couple photographs of them. And I'll be honest with you, the photographs do look a little bit pale. I'm I'm in disbelief that they couldn't work it out personally in the makeup department. So, um... I don't know. Maybe cosmetics have come a long way since well, then. So but, here, here's the thing. Um,
2: here's the thing you need to know about black and white film is that when you're filming in black and white, you change the color rendering of makeup. And so if they seem green or if things seemed not right in color, on, in black and white, it was believable, right? So I believe yes. both of them or one of them had red wigs, which you do not perceive at all. In black and white, but it looks believable. And when you see the color pictures of them, it's like, oh my God, that's a man in drag. Like it's the, the, the whole extreme suspension of disbelief collapses immediately. But once you put that in black and white, it is more realistic and more appealing to the observer
0: billy city liked it being in the 20s like put you in the time period i don't know you didn't walk around the 1920s actually in black and white we just movies to billy from that time period were in black and white i don't know that i buy that as much part of me wishes that we could have made this work in color because um or, or even done a wizard of Oz thing where Chicago was shot and like black and white and like, you know, Florida was in color almost, but I mean, to some degree of not, not necessarily that, but, um, you think of femininity of, um, you know, okay. Being colorful and, and full of color. So like, if you see like dudes, like on like a cologne ad, they're always like in black and white. And like, you know, like strong, classy, timeless, black, white. And it's the opposite, like fashion magazines, you know, billboards and things, uh, femininity is always in super color. So I just thought as a direction decision that they took away bullets out of their chamber that they could have had to play with this, um, world, but I, I can't complain too much. I mean, I just thought it was a part of me did wish this could have been in color, but so
2: i see that as them going back to that kind of mafia movie kind of point of view like the 1920s mafia they did. escapade whatever they did. it is like that was why they did black and white um and i appreciate that like i think it's 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 pretty magical like i've always i've always had an appreciation for films that could have done color but did not for whatever reason and they chose black and white as the medium through which they wanted to express themselves, like that. That is a choice. There, there is something magical about that. Still,
0: I look at like Asphalt Jungle, 50s movie that we did, Killers in the 40s that we did, and uh, Maltese Falcon. I feel like sometimes when you have black and white, it's just so dramatic and so well done. And again, I'm I don't mean to keep knocking Billy Wilder's skill. I don't feel like he hits the low key lighting, the shadow, the solid, the void. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't feel like he plays the game of black and white filming in a pretty way. So, I, I find myself all the things that I like of a noir 40s movie. I don't think, you know, I don't think any of that's there actually. So, I don't know. Um, I'm going to stop being so mean to Billy Wilder now. So, <laughs> but um, uh, also, this stuff is not rigorously made for the 20s. There's fifties isms as you start to read on this just popping up all over the place. Even Marilyn's performance dress, like when she's singing, big moments there. They're like pseudo kitschy twenties, like they didn't put a lot of work into getting this right. I don't know if that's the result of it's too recent. Like if you were tasked right now with going back and making a movie that was thirty five years ago, I still think you could do better of just only staying in that lane and not letting like, you know, I think that they said that what the men are wearing are actually more accurate and that the women around them are dripping with fifties things and that they have moments of like they're wearing fifties purses and stuff like that. And like, there's just things around in the environment that show more clearly. Now we have the benefit of it's all old to us. It's all real old to us. And it starts to just blend in. These things become more forgiving. It kind of bleeds a little bit. bit. Yeah. It does. Yeah. And this will become more forgiving over time. However watching historians pick it apart and people who actually know what they're doing here it is surprising this movie that comes with oscar nominations and and makeup awards and things like that that the wardrobe wasn't more rigorous just a surprise of mine
2: anachronisms are always a part of film like we we can we can pull apart other other film pieces which we won't get into here for not kind of upholding their their time period but I mean, I agree with you, Russell, like it is, it's so far removed from us at this point in time that it is difficult to decipher what is and is not canon for the time period. Um, I'm in particular thinking of Marilyn Monroe's dress in the final kind of uh, show scene or the performance scene, which is, is not 1950s, like it, it's, but it's sexy. It's very sexy.
1: Sure. Yeah. I'm
2: sorry. It's not 1920s. It is 1950s. It's but it's sexy, though.
1: I'm willing to let a whole bunch of stuff slide. If the uh, difference if you were if you had to describe low waisted denim of the 2001 2003 to someone that had never seen it before you'd have to say no seriously go lower seriously go lower we wore it like that like, what <laughs> like so like there's some things that the bleed is almost better than the perfect accuracy yeah yeah no seriously and go lower did... i need to see you no, don't understand no no no
0: no, no, no. pubic hair i need to see pubic <laughs> hair we need to see pubic hair here <laughs> um that's a very good point dustin so i it's just one of those things where it, when I, I i stumbled across an article that actually had like fashion expert people who do this for a living in wardrobe in movies going back and reanalyzing this and again they put their work into the main too and that they do come off as what you know stuffy women in the 20s would have worn more cons- on the on the more concert like we went to a conservatory <laughs> like you know what i mean um so their hats yeah. and, and what they did is actually more the wigs are probably the part that were grilled the hardest to, I think you mentioned them earlier DJ like you were a little hard on those um I think they were saying that those were rough even for then, and they probably should have done a better job with their wigs even at the time um so anyway it just was one of those things where it surprised me of like you know in, in a movie where you are trying to be somebody or not I'm surprised they didn't do better there so um well I mean then we think of the time
1: period too is like if, if this would be impossible with certain types of clothing. Uh I thought that they would have give, given up the goat right away when it came to um uh swimming. Right? Or the the idea that uh any type of like swimming garment of the late 20s uh that you wouldn't be seeing just the sheer tons of hair that Jack Lemmon must have. But then then you put then you put into perspective like okay, well swimming caps are we doing this at a time when caps would have been think about the lengths of the dresses that they wear I mean these things are done I think and same with the makeup like I'm going to jump in here to say I think these are done just to give us our best shot of making it seem like these men could pass off as women which we know would be impossible in real life so what's the best shot we could do well if we pick a time period where the dress length would have been down at the calves, then maybe we have a shot and if we're doing something where there's no low decolletage, then maybe we have a shot. And if we're doing something where hats are worn, then maybe we have a shot. Otherwise, just the fact, just just being in bed next to Daphne, you would have realized those are a man's legs. Like like there's, I I think the goal was to how do we just iron this out to make it seem like it's possible because we know that it's not.
0: They did add in uh, a strong musical element, as you mentioned earlier, that you had fun with it. That's a soundtrack created by Adolf Deutsch, and um, the soundtrack does have an authentic nineteen twenties jazz feeling. So, the brassy strings and instruments and stuff like that that they're playing of you know, they, you know where the line of the movie comes, I'm like it hot. You know, like I mean, they uh, they they have to dial it back down with what they're doing because they've been playing in these. You know clubs and stuff like that and they have to be restrained like conservatory um so even even the guise of what they're doing as far as music goes was carried into the music
1: yeah big brassy i actually have a little bit more to say about that in um of, an upcoming section
0: how about we do superlatives i'm ready all right um mvp dj well i think you all know who i'm gonna
2: choose it's gonna be marilyn monroe
0: yep she's an icon dustin how about you
1: I'm, I'm glad one of you actually mentioned this earlier. Uh, it, it's actually it's Tony Curtis in being finding it hard to play this role. <laughs> That's uh, like I think he was if you had to pick someone, like, can you be uncomfortable playing a woman? He was born for that. Uh, and so I think it worked. Uh, there, there is the moment, I think when you first see him, like the way that he's holding his head, he obviously his coat showed him how to walk. Uh, I think the execution of just almost being able to do it makes it funnier than I think Jack Lemon does a more natural job of it. Um, and I, I, so I think that's fun. Now it's only half the movie where he's pretending to be a movie, uh, a, a woman, but, um, I I think maybe it's because I was unfamiliar with Tony Curtis before this. This was my introduction to him. So uh, I'm giving him the MVP, actually.
0: I got to give him a credit, too. He does a pivot that nobody else has to, where he does a double fake identity. And his rich guy persona, which we haven't talked about, is hilarious. It's like an impression of Cary Grant. And, like, you know, it's a bad impression, but, like, an exaggerated impression. So much so that even Cary Grant got done and watched this movie and said, I don't sound like that. (laughs) <laughs> it's good so um, very funny that his rich guy persona was just very funny as well so I like your pick there and I'm gonna complete the trio here Jack Lemon is mine I think that I think him having this field day and this you know at times tortured balance between I don't like what I'm doing. This is, I'll never get away with this. I'm nervous. But then also coming in and playing maracas, having a wonderful time. is like, you know, <laughs> so silly, <laughs> you know, he, he elevates this to the comedy. Just, just, just makes, you know, like you said, none of this works. <laughs> Jack Lemmon being so silly <laughs> is what makes him work, That it doesn't work. So it's funny. So, Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of the play between what is femininity versus masculinity comes through in Jack Lemmon's humor. And I mean, that's one of those movies so great. So, um, I love Jack Lemmon always. So you can't go wrong putting him in any movie. He's one of the best people at range. Like he, he has like this Robin Williams, like range to be able to do intense, serious, uh, warm, grumpy, uh, funny. I mean, like there's nothing he can't do. So, best supporting actor, DJ.
2: I'm going to go with Joe E. Brown as Osgood Fielding the <laughs> Third. He's great. What a because character. That's magic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> zowie. It was <laughs> zowie. just <laughs> Zowie. How many times oh have you been married? Yeah, uh... <laughs> I don't eight, eight, remember. Nine? I don't remember. <laughs> I, I'll tell you that's
0: my that's my choice too. Just, just dynamite on screen. He's so great, and I don't know that she's technically counts as supporting, but I did go Marilyn Monroe, hidden gem, DJ. I'm gonna say all of the girls on the
2: train in the birth scene when they're all having like the party and like it's just like this field day of just like insanity and. Mm-hmm. How in the world do they fit all that many people into a berth in a 1920s (laughs) train car? Like, how did that work out?
0: That's back when we can afford to ride the train. I thought it was so funny to watch what it would have been like in the 20s just to be like, I've got like a plastic Dixie cup with some alcohol. Like, and how excited everybody was. (laughs) I mean, like, that's really off limits. That's, it's literally illegal. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole nother. That, 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 is, that is funny, DJ. Do you um, have Do you have Don't you have yeah. vermouth? Yeah. You there's maraschino <laughs> yeah.
2: cherries? I've got the salami.
0: That was great. Yeah, good pick well, And then there.
1: there's, a, there's, a, there's something else too that's kind of period specific. Like somebody gets some ice and they have to get a big block of and ice chip and chip away down. at it. Yeah. Like it's awesome. Dustin, pin gem mine will reference back to the music and you first hear it when they're doing their different their rendition of sing 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 which a lot of you people will know as the Chips Ahoy commercial song that big brassy swing song uh this movie and the soundtrack for it utilizes a mute our friend Nathan will know about mutes for brass instruments like a plunger that it looks like a plunger, and Louis Armstrong did did some great work with it. Uh, but essentially, the the mute work in this soundtrack is the maybe the best I've ever heard in a movie. Isn't it sad so that I it, was blown away?
0: Isn't it sad that an impressive piece of music, over time, becomes reduced to it's the Chips Ahoy song? The Chips Ahoy yeah. song. <laughs> Everyone knows what I'm talking. I about. I do know what you're talking about, and I needed that. But it's sad that I needed that. So <laughs> it's
1: not that sad.
0: Chips Ahoy is good. Thank you, Dustin. (laughs) Um, My hidden gem is going to be Harry Wilson. He is Spats's henchman, and he's the one with the big knobby nose who gets a couple of speaking lines. (laughs) What a good rough henchman he is! And he runs the perfect line between like, (laughs) "Yeah, I'm tough," and this could work in like a gangster movie, but I'm also in a comedy movie. So, and like there's like a fun yeah. thug, thuggery about him. So, Harry Wilson was just so perfect for walking the line of what this movie is. So, recast, DJ, it's going to be hard. You said it was going to be hard. You're going to take the, you're going to do what I do and just go deeper in the cast?
2: No, it's, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to, I'm going to go top bill. I'm going to recast Tony Curtis, uh, mainly because I have an axe to grind against him and him describing Ooh. his kiss with Marilyn Monroe as like, kissing Hitler quote unquote. So, I'm going to get rid of him and go for James Dean
0: instead. Okay, wow.
1: Oh, he could pull it off.
0: I think I think there was a real frustration in the and what from from the out point. You might not have even know what she was going through. I have to remember that too. Of just like how frustrated would you be working with somebody who does keep not showing up, not doing what they're supposed to do and you are counting on them. So, I mean, these stories sound horrible and Marilyn's such a likable person that you're like, that's a jerk thing to say. So, um, and no, she is not like kissing Hitler. She's beautiful. He is the opposite of beautiful. <laughs> and she has no little weird mustache. That's not at all accurate. That's a bad comparison.
1: <laughs> Nobody said he was good at comparisons.
0: <laughs> but, uh, anyway, um, Dustin recast.
1: All right, I got a weird one here, and I want to recast it or I just want to include it in the movie. So I'm going to pick a classic British cinema, man's man, lived a very particular type of life, Oliver Reed. I want him in this movie maybe as Beanstalk instead of Dave Barry. Yeah, I I, I think it'd be a crazy dynamic. He could not and certainly would not do drag. There's no way. But what if he was at the point of his career where he would? And what if there was a third guy in the all-women's band who's undercover for a different reason? I don't know. I'm just playing around with this. And maybe he gets found out while the other two stay hidden. I'm just playing around. But I just thought to myself while I'm watching this movie, Oliver Reed would be weird here. Well, I guess that's my answer for the show. <laughs> so that's, I'm just going to put it in there.
0: I, I'm going to go with a similar direction, but different. Um, I'm coming after Dave Barry as well, who plays Beanstalk. He's the male or- orchestra manager. So uh, the guy with the really big glasses, while physically funny, I don't find his performance to like deliver as much as some of these other side characters do, because this movie has good side characters for the most part. Um, and I thought to myself, wouldn't Milton Berle... Be funny dad in here. Milton Berle does drag himself (laughs) in his career. And so you're not actually putting him in drag in the movie. Like he's not actually cross-dressing in the movie, but he has done so. And he is known to have done so. So you're playing with the audience's expectations and tipping the hat. And we're all under the uh, umbrella, you know, under the pink umbrella, if you will. So, I mean, I think that would be a fun tip of the hat to what we're doing here. So, um, yeah um also he's funny so getting some more funny people never goes wrong so uh best shot dj we just laid into billy for not having beautiful shots did you find one that you thought was the best shot
2: i mean yes yes and no there are some good ones the one i put down for this was the well nobody's perfect scene which is the final scene and I will leave it at that for now, because I'm going to revisit that in my best quote series. Mm.
0: DJ, sorry, I'm, your, your names both start with D and it's late. Sorry, <laughs> <The> Dustin. <D's. laughs>
1: Dustin. Mine is when Jerry is hanging upside down while Joe is sleeping. And it's the funny shot because Joe is sleeping in a really glamorous way. Uh, like almost like a like a on a fainting couch almost like or, or somebody was like having to take like pose for a painting of what it looks like to sleep in the most glamorous way and it was another moment where I laughed out loud. Um and then you get sort of the silliness. I think I think Jack Lemon nails it with with his just comedic just his face sometimes, his reactions to things, the way the hair bobs on his head is funnier for some reason. Maybe it's just because it's Jack Lemon. But that shot was I, I wrote it down while the movie was going. I said, come back to this because I think it's the shot of the movie.
0: I, I don't think this is a movie of clever shooting. As I mentioned before, there's moments that make you happy because of who is in the shot. <laughs> um, there you go, yeah. But my, I think one of the more resourceful moments was a moment of taking a feminine accessory of the makeup mirror and shooting the shot when Daphne uh, is looking in the mirror and sees the gangsters coming in the door at the hotel and they're like, like, holy crap, who just walked in the door kind of moment. And so that was creative it was done off of a reflection so um it was the it was a dramatic moment for the movie where there was another turn in the comedy but it was also seen through this reflection of the makeup mirror itself so um do more of that billy wilder <laughs> um, so um good good work on that one best scene this is tougher DJ.
2: best scene is going to be one of the openers for me and that's when Marilyn's entering the train station and the train hisses at her and we get that allusion back to the seven year itch. Good callback. Sure.
0: Sugar's sugar walking on screen. Excellent. Dustin. Best screen. The
1: comedy of the boat parlor when 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 he's feigning being a millionaire and explaining why he can't fall in love the writing is so funny the acting is spot on there's some other just silliness to it and then there's always the moment they're like oh you're you're somewhere where you're not supposed to be and this could fall apart at any minute was very very fun so that's my best scene Oh, what um,
0: kind of fish is that? A herring? <laughs>
2: How'd they get them in a the little jar so small?
1: Yeah, little things. Oh, so good.
0: Oh, uh, My best scene is when Osgood gives Jerry, or Daphne, a diamond bracelet, and he brings it back to the room. And uh, he gives it, <laughs> and Joe ends up later then in turn giving it to Sugar. This whole run of, like, What have you done, Joe? You've gotten in... Or Jerry, what have you done, Jerry? You've gotten in way too deep here, and you're crossing a huge mess. And then also, Joe being like, "Eh, well... That's not real. I can just give this to her and she, like, I mean, the the whole interplay as. You calling my fiance a bum? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm laughing a whole lot during this scene and it really cracks me up. And it takes a lot to beat the final scene. Once they are found out the mafia is chasing them, they're climbing out the windows. And like when everything's crisscrossing and the jig is kind of up, that's a lot of fun. But I have to admit. The the, the the diamond bracelet like the Osgood engagement kind of thing is just <laughs> it's too good it's, it's really good <laughs> um, best wardrobe or makeup moment boy if there was ever a time when this superlative was perfect it's this time DJ well,
2: I've already said it earlier but again I'm going to go with that little black dress Marilyn's wearing and that final performance scene um, that is superb and perfect and she is beautiful and Dustin
1: uh, mine's quick because I figured we'd talk more about the wardrobe earlier, which we did, which is uh, Tony Curtis's glasses get steamed up in that parlor scene. And I'm like, what a gag. So No one's above a gag. And it was just it was comedy. So I loved it. Uh,
0: my best wardrobe moment is going to be when we first see Daphne and Josephine walking into the train station. We don't see them head on. We see them as leggings from behind on dude legs. And, um, yeah. and then, you know, you walk up from the lead leggings and the, the camera does pan up and you see, you see, this is who they are. And it, it, it was an abrupt cut from where they were in the previous scene. So it's a good cut. It's a good, um, introduction and, uh, it shows off the wardrobe from a non-assuming like what it would be like to walk from behind these people. So. And if you, you don't really pay that much attention to anybody, but the camera's forcing you to pay attention to it. So that's part of it that, you know, maybe that they, they, maybe they could walk through a train station because nobody actually pays attention to other people that much. Change one thing, DJ.
2: This one's difficult, but if I were to change one thing, I do agree with Dustin. I feel like that the mobster, the mafia scene towards the end is kind of clunky and kind of drawn out. I would shorten that a little bit more. And that's, that's about it.
0: Dustin, how about you? Let me
1: expand on that. It's the exact same thing. I wrote this when I watched the movie, and I hadn't touched it since we started the show. So I'm just going to read what I wrote two weeks ago. They wanted to shoehorn in a bunch of mob gags and hijinks and then have Little Bonaparte deliver a weird speech connected to nothing. And this was just after the coincidence, the wild coincidence of them being at the same place in the first place. We need to end with some type of big performance. Remember, this is about the women's band where the two end up getting outed somehow in some comedic way. Or there needs to be a need for two men to arrive out of nowhere and they happen to be there. This movie is too lighthearted to have it become about organized crime in the end. That
0: part was worse than clunky, DJ. It was bad. Wow. I'm not bothered by that one as much as you guys are, given where we started the movie. But um, I considered it weaving in where this had come from. But. It's forced. Okay. No, that's, that's fine. I agree. So. I'm going to... I love the bellboy who finds Daphne hot and, <laughs> and is like so shamelessly hitting on her and harassing yeah, her. Yeah, a little dog. I feel like a few more... I feel like the hotel... So the train, as DJ mentioned, is a very multi-character moment. We don't get to see a lot of the hallway of the girls talking to each other and other characters that are going on in the hotel. Uh, you went there, you shot there in person, so... I mean, you have the actual corridors, the lobbies, the elevators. I want to see a little bit more of this hotel world because the Bellboy and some of the people are so funny. I think the the side characters at this ad are good. Maybe, Maybe Billy can weave in a few more humorous moments and add another layer of complexity, another moving part to this. I mean, it's already great. So it's like, I'm just saying, do what it's already doing, but maybe just add a little more into it. Sure. So yeah Um, best quote DJ
2: okay so I alluded to this earlier this is going to be the final (laughs) quote that's well nobody's perfect and to set this up um, Joe slash Josephine has recently been outed to Sugar Kane as a man and they are escaping on Osgood's boat with Daphne we split away to Osgood and Daphne talking we don't see the other two in this scene and um osgood is explaining to daphne that he wants to marry her and that this this is going to happen immediately daphne's going through all these things well i'm not really a blonde i smoke i was just in a three-year relationship with a saxophonist all this stuff (laughs) to which he's like he's completely supportive and is a good person is like i I don't care i love you like you're you're perfect the way you are and then she reveals the 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 pita resistance of this whole interlude. <laughs> I'm a man. And his response to that is, well, nobody's perfect. And what I love about that is <laughs> obviously that is an anticlimax. That is not how you expect this to end in any way whatsoever. It is also very transgressional for that time period, because this is 1959. We still have the haze Code in place, which is the kind of the moralistic undergirding a film in terms of permitting what is and is not acceptable and i felt that this is kind of the pinnacle moment when the Hayes code ultimately is repealed not officially but eventually a couple years later becomes repealed but it is the ultimate kind of point in which we find this kind of questioning of this thing that has guided society for so long and that is the beauty of that that scene and that quote for me.
0: It And it is on the AFI
1: greatest quotes list. Well, the context makes it makes it better. It does. The context makes it better, for sure.
0: It does. DJ, or sorry, huh, man. Dustin. <laughs> Stop it. Dustin, best <laughs> quote.
1: Not anymore. I was in love once, but I would rather not talk about it. Would you like a little cold pheasant? <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, that's, of course, from the parlor scene, and it, it's the the speed at which he's scrambling to figure out where anything is in this parlor and just distract from whatever just to get to in the end this is a ruse to to trick a woman into falling in love with you or marrying like it's it's all a big trick and so the speed of this uh improv is so good uh the shock of the moving from this fake love story to yeah, you want to try some of this cold bird here? <laughs> it's very funny to me.
0: And mine is that interplay that DJ had said where, you know, you know, I smoke, I smoke all the time. I don't care. You know, well, I have a terrible past. For three years now, I've been living with the saxophone of a player. I forgive you. And just like the constant fast stream of like the interplay of like i can't have children we can adopt some and like the, the quickness of osgood's problem solving that none of this is a problem and it all builds up to like i'm a dude <laughs> and he's like oh nobody's perfect and like he's, he's th- like so
2: permissive and so sweet and like he wants to solve the problems here like he's a good person like
0: it's good It it's a really good line um If I had to pick something different, I did love Jack Lemmon coming in and going like, I'm engaged. (laughs) And and he said, congratulations. Who's the lucky girl? I am what <laughs> Oscar proposed to me we're, pl- plan- we're, we're, we're planning a June wedding like you know like he's already thought about when the wedding's gonna be and
1: Daphne's life is better than Jerry's life <laughs>
0: like, it's awesome like, what are you talking about you can't marry him he's like do you think he's too old for me like, like you know, unable to break from character <laughs> it's the best love that interchange so funny um all right we we have to do this. This is a big moment here on a five star scale half star intervals d j what do you rate? Some like it hot?
2: four point five those monster scenes get a little grueling.
0: interesting yeah i th- you you held you held back from the full five I, I had you pegged for full five on this one. so Dustin, how about you?
1: I'm actually going to go with a four here and i'm I'm really, really using the uh Reliance on the Italian Opera Appreciators Conference, I think that was just slammed together. I don't like it, but I love everything else. So because of that, a four, I would, I should give it a 3.5, but I, but a four, it's just so good at so many other things. And it's really rare for me to line up with like a popular list for me to think that the number one comedy on the AFI list is as funny as it was really surprised me. So a four stars. And that's, I'm glad I'm, I, I feel, I feel like I've like grown a little bit to be able to appreciate the movie. So it's a four star
0: um i'm going i'm going full five and this one i think it's just such an intelligent movie that you know it 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 deals with masculinity versus femininity it has held up so well over time it towed the line of what was edgy at the time it's a very difficult thing to do 70 years later and to still hold meaning it does all of those things it inspired a really good conversation here about a number of topics and again so far removed from when it was made and i think blatantly honestly it is just enjoyably funny and if it has an incredibly high rewatch value and yes and i have enjoyed watching it and coming back to it over and over again i won't stop watching it i, I'll, I don't pick it up as frequently as i should probably the, the runtime maybe gets into it maybe the black and white nature of it and finding the right people to say like hey let's all sit down and watch a funny movie you know you're not being like, you can't take off the like, let's teach a film class kind of hat, you know, a little bit with it. But Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, it is that good. It is just really enjoyable. So it's a five for me. And, um, I really enjoyed looking at it, talking about it with you guys. And it was just so much fun. So five. Great scores. Yeah. Or sorry, the Italian opera goes, Dustin, nobody's perfect.
1: (laughs) Great. Uh, Thank you for that.
0: (laughs) Um, So, Dustin, you want to help me pick a movie for next time? You got it. Disney and Pixar do some amazing work and dominate much of the animated film world conversation, but Universal's DreamWorks has made some good ones as well, and today we have three DreamWorks animated movies. Option one, How to Train Your Dragon from 2010, a hapless young Viking who aspires to hunt dragons, becomes the unlikely friend of a young dragon himself and learns there may be more to the creatures than he assumed. Option two, Shrek from 2001. A mean lord exiles fairy tale creatures to the swamp of a grumpy ogre who must go on a quest and rescue a princess for the lord in order to get his land back. And option three, ants with a Z. And a rather neurotic ant tries to break from his totalitarian society while trying to win the affection of the princess he loves. Dustin. 2001's Shrek, Russell all right shrek it is all right and dj thank you so much for joining us once again these are always fun thank you all the lords ladies and knights of the retro movie roundtable we invite you to reach out to us so we want to hear from you so subscribe rate and review to us on itunes spotify stitcher wherever you get your podcast give us a like on facebook follow us on twitter at at movie underscore retro and email us at retro movie roundtable at yahoo.com we are on youtube so even if you Follow us in other ways. Go ahead and give us a subscribe there. That helps boost our numbers. We just love it. So, and producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. So, we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Retro Movie Roundtable. Any contributions are much appreciated. And we'll go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Dustin?
1: Go to that landless latitude and good luck. If you figure a way to live without serving a master, any master, then let the rest of us know, will you? For you'd be the first in the history of the world.